0: I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, writer, medievalist, and pertinently for today's discussion, mother of three young kids from age six to one and a half. I'm really excited to welcome Shannon K. Evans to Old Books with Grace today. Um, Shannon is a woman with a Catholic spirituality and an interfaith heart. Her passion is opening up deeper waters of contemplating God so that our experience of the divine grows further loving and curious rather than static and complacent. She's a regular contributor to Franciscan media and writes the Everyday Ignatian column at Jesuits.org, the official website for the Jesuits of U.S. and Canada. Shannon is the author of two books, Rewilding Motherhood and Embracing Weakness. And Shannon, thanks for being here. I'm so excited you're here.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation.
0: And been looking forward to it. So I'm extra excited to have Shannon on today because um, Rewilding Motherhood, which I just read a couple weeks ago, uh, teaches spirituality that is both feminine and empowered. Um, one of the important images at the very end of the book is thinking of Jesus or God as our mother rather than just our father. So, not supplanting that image, but in addition to that image.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Um, I'm really pleased to see this image because Shannon and I have both um, worked on this from different angles, which is really cool. So, one of my research subjects is Julian of Norwich, who um, writes a lot on Jesus as our mother. And I focused on this from an academic and literary and theological angle. And Shannon comes at it from a mothering, writerly, and equally theological angle. Um, So, I've been excited to combine forces and have a conversation about why this image, which um, may feel kind of surprising or confusing or foreign at first, um, even uncomfortable, um, matters a ton. But before we get into Jesus's mother, I have a couple of questions I like to ask folks who come on the podcast. And first of all, Shannon... What is your favorite book or author from more than 50 years ago and why?
1: (laughs) Well, it's funny because it's probably Julian of Norwich's. (laughs) Good Good choice. choice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that was kind of an easy one. But, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that uh, her entire theology from like the the first few pages where she talks about the hazelnut, you know, and having this vision of, I know the hazelnut and God telling her like, this is everything that exists. Um, Like I was hooked from the beginning. I just, you know, her spirituality is so nourishing to me. And, you know, a lot of um, the way that she really did kind of upend and still continues to upend our, our kind of theological comfort zone a little bit is really, um, inspiring to me, and also just really refreshing. you know. and, um, I think the fact that she's the first woman to write a book in the English language is just so stinking cool. <laughs> like she's how just, cool
0: is that? I love that.
1: Yes, that is like the first the first book written by a woman in English is like, this intense theological like like um, survey that like really rocked the church at the time, and like you know everybody was kind of wondering, is she a heretic? Is she not a heretic? And I just I just have so much uh, so much respect and appreciation for that book.
0: Love it. Um, that is also my answer too. So, oh no
1: way, really? Well, uh, yes. I know I'm no, surprised. I'm I'm yeah. Julian
0: of Norwich obsessed a little bit. Um, she is just the best. Uh, so, second question for you: Which literary character do you most identify with, and why?
1: This is hard because I am one of those people that like like when you finish a novel you feel like you've lost friends yes, <laughs> <You know>? yes. <laughs> it's like it's really easy for me to like like um project my own self onto the characters that I'm reading but I think from, like even objectively speaking I have gotten a lot of feedback that I am very much a Lizzie Bennett from Pride and Prejudice so fun So I I think that I definitely, I love that book um, and I love that character, but I think even the parts that I don't think are very flattering feel like they're probably pretty accurate of me, the stubbornness and, you know, kind of some of the snark.
0: Yeah. She's such a great character though. That's a really good one. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I mean, um, I like her
0: clearly. No, she's a good time, too. Like, who wouldn't be friends with her if she were alive right now? Like, she'd be a real friend. She would. She'd
1: be great.
0: All right. That's awesome. Um, I always thought that I was Elizabeth Bennett when I was reading and then – probably about a year ago, I had an epiphany that I was actually much more like Mr. Darcy than Elizabeth oh. Bennett. Mm-hmm. And, um, my husband was much more like Elizabeth Bennett. Like we were the gender swapped version of them. Right, right. Um, I'm the much like more grumpy non-party person and he's <laughs> way more fun than me.
1: So That's so funny. Well, it's sometimes hard to see past the, the gender, which is a good lead into our conversation. Yay hey. <laughs> It sure
0: is. Um, But I wanted to, before we like get into the nitty gritty of it, which too bad because we're wasting that really excellent transition, um, which I (laughs) wish we could jump on, but I wanted to first ask you um, for my listeners who haven't had the opportunity to read Rewilding Motherhood yet at this point, um, which I really enjoyed and definitely recommend. And for those of you who are on Instagram, uh, I... I wrote up a little short blurb on it on Instagram a couple weeks ago, so you can check that out. Um, but for those of, of us who haven't read it yet, could you tell us a little bit about it and kind of give us uh, your little short introduction to this great book that you wrote?
1: Yes. I always laugh because I'm, I'm the worst at like the elevator pitch. I just Ugh. continue to babble on and on, but, but yeah, I mean, it, it kind of came from this idea or this feeling that I I wasn't, I gave up on books about motherhood a while ago, but same because <laughs> they just never felt very like they didn't carry a lot of resonance with me. It was sort of like, okay, that's fine. Um, but I think I sort of hit this point in my life. I have five kids. Um, the oldest is 11 and the youngest is two. And I sort of a couple of years ago when I got pregnant with my youngest, I sort of went through this like mini- miniature life crisis and like was just unpacking thing a lot of things and one of those things was was my life and how how so much of my mental space was was spent thinking of one day in the future when my kids are older than xyz professionally spiritually personally all of these ways and i just was sort of i just kind of put my foot down and i was like there has to be a path forward where I am right now in the trenches, in the chaos. And then I, so I sort of, it sort of became this, um, path of curiosity for me to, to explore, like, what, what is motherhood really meant to be? What is it meant to, um, what part does it play in our womanhood and at us as, as individuals on a spiritual journey, on a journey of, um, you know, Emotional healing or wholeness and all of these things, finding our place in society and in the world. And I think a lot of times motherhood feels like something that sort of gets in the way of all of that. Mm. And I so with this book, I wanted to explore how uh, motherhood actually is an advantage and kind of primes us for that that spiritual path and that um path of of inner work that so often we feel like is for. 10 years down the road or something like that. Um, yes. So, yeah, that's my short spiel, I guess.
0: No, that was great. <laughs> um, and I, I feel like a lot of that uh, really comes to a head in your chapter on patience, which was my favorite one that you wrote, by the way. Um,
1: say that was their favorite.
0: Yes. Um, I think because it really hits on that head of uh, you're not caught in limbo right now. Like this is... This is living and you are not just a person raising children, though that is the central part of your life probably right now. Um, And and you had that story, which I thought was sadly so reflective of how many of us experience motherhood which is uh, that I think that was it in the New York Times that artist who was like you can't be an artist if you're just painting in your kitchen at night and I'm sure that for all of us who are like creative moms that felt like a punch to the gut because literally that is what we do um yeah. is right early in the morning and late at night or paint or do whatever is bringing us joy um right. and that you kind of take aim at that and um and sh- expose how shallow of an understanding that
1: is about art and parenting. Um, I really appreciated that. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I shout out to the artist mother podcast. They're the, um, the ones that uh, actually created a whole, um, a whole show uh, and an art show around that, around pushing back on that. And I found that really inspiring um, and really kind of a critique of, how how patriarchy harms us in ways that we don't even realize of I mean and and not just women but but men who are trying to create in the margins of their day too like yes that's worthy and that's valid and it's real and um and I think it's it's important to yeah it's important to um push back on those spoken and unspoken uh Ass- assertions that I think are false. So yeah, I'm glad that came across in the chapter. Yes. Okay. So um, why
0: do you think it's important to think of Jesus as a mother? So what's at stake? What does it change um, in our minds or in our actions? Sorry, that's a, a massive question. So you can break it down if you want, but I think that's kind of at the heart of if you're already thinking of God as a parent, like, why does it matter? And I think it does. And I'd like to hear why you think it matters.
1: Yeah. I mean, I know for me, when I when I first, a few years ago, when I first started exploring that, it I was shocked by how differently it felt in my soul and in my brain to image God in the feminine instead of the masculine, because I would definitely have always been like, yeah, God is genderless, God is spirit, neither male nor female, you know, yada yada, that whole thing. But okay, think of, you know, how does it feel to say our father who art in heaven versus our mother who art in heaven? Like those are very different internal experiences that we have and reactions that we have um, because of kind of, well, for a lot of reasons, but one, because we've been told that only one of those things is permissible, you know, so the other one feels very threatening and and scary to most of us and be very unknown. Um, But yeah, as to your question of what's at stake, I think that there is, I mean, you could list so many of the obvious things, right, of kind of this like toxic masculine culture that, that women have physically suffered from in church spheres. You know, I'm Catholic, so in our in our in our church, we have obviously a big reckoning with sexual abuse, sexual misconduct right now. in Protestant spheres, the same thing is going on. and you know, so we're all sort of coming to terms with like, oh, maybe unchecked male power is not the best. <laughs> that's set up here, you know, maybe maybe we should start to question this. I don't know. Maybe there are ramifications of that. Um, And so there's that for sure. I think anytime that, that one gender is, is, um, is more seen as the image of God, then it's going to dump way too much power on that gender. And so I think I think the way that we do that is not only elevating the voices and the positions of females in the church which i think is very important um but i think it's it's also bringing that feminine aspect of god to the forefront too and saying um like how do we change when we see god differently and i think that's always the thing of like We have to be careful not to make God in our own image. You know, we all kind of agree on that. But in some way, we all do. It's an inevitable part of being human. You know, we need some sort of metaphor for God. So we look for that in ways that are comfortable and familiar to us. Um, But, you know, I think it's helpful to introduce new metaphors to kind of create more wholeness and to create... um, a healthier and more balanced structure and just as individuals in our hearts and souls. So I would say, you know, the very obvious, um, abuses of power are, are something, um, that's at stake, but then also the, the underlying culture of, um, male dominated spaces tend to be more, um, Numbers based and competitive. Mm-hmm. and um that's not bad, but it has to be kept in in an equilibrium, you know, so it's yes. good to to want growth. and it's good to want um, you know to see more numbers than you saw last year in your church or whatever, <laughs> you know things like that. But it's also um it's also at the expense often of the more feminine approach that is more pastoral in a lot of ways, more of the like we see of Jesus leaving the 99 to find the one. Yes. Um, and I think that women are kind of naturally more, more wired to stop for the one. And so, yeah, there's, there's this balance that is at stake in um, how our spiritual spaces function. And on an individual level, um, I think, you know, the the Eastern tradition of the yin and yang is so, such a beautiful way to express um the individual makeup of, of each one of us. So not even talking about systems, but on a small scale um, of me as an individual, like if I am in balance and kind of repressing my own femininity, because I don't see that as, as being a worthy part of the divine, um, I'm not going to be as healthy of a person. I'm not going to be um, the person that I am made to be in a whole balance, um, which is equal parts, masculine and feminine and obviously as as a female probably you know my feminine side is probably a little bit stronger but keeping yeah I think I think looking for a way to emphasize the feminine in the divine um frees us to 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 find that more in ourselves men and women you know the book is yes. for women but I think it's equally true and necessary for men as well
0: Yes, which actually, um, so one thing that um, I really liked about what you just said is this idea of finding new metaphors, um, which I think is a, a really important one. And and I think um, it reminds me of uh, some medieval theologians when writing about this or, or um, even slightly earlier, but uh, Thomas Aquinas loved talking about how like language can't capture God. So if we get too stuck in one way of thinking about God, like God as masculine, even though theoretically we know, oh, he's not, you know, he doesn't have genitalia. He doesn't have, you know, he doesn't have whatever, but he's not, we just get stuck in this he rut. He, he, Mm -hmm. he, God is a man, et cetera. Um, Then we begin to capture him in our language that actually is not a a truthful way. So this generating Mm -hmm. of metaphors is really helpful. Um, But to jump off what you just brought up, which is men kind of finding this image, you actually uh, talked your way into my next question for you, which is um, I think women respond a little more naturally to the idea of Jesus' mother, especially women who are mothers. It's easier to see yourself if you know, if that's a part of your life that you're well acquainted with. Um, but I do think it provides something we need. Uh, to men and and anybody who identifies any gender and, and to people who are not parents too. Mm-hmm. Um, and c- could we think together on that for a minute and how does opening your heart to visions of Jesus that are not just masculine um, speak to men? And I, you already uh, began answering that question, but maybe we can just continue with that for a moment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was, I went off on a, I went off on that trail, (laughs) that, that, um, rabbit trail there, because I think like, I feel really, I feel really strongly about it. And I think, I think it can be something that feels like more important for women. Like, Oh yeah. Women deserve to see themselves, you know, as images of God. And like, so how are we presenting um, the divine and and that's all that's all very true and I think you know representation clearly matters but yeah it also um it also matters for men because there are places in us that that are healed by the maternal differently you know than places that are healed by the paternal and I think that you know both are really necessary and, in in the way that we look at God. And I think, um, so I think for men to really come to the place of the deep inner work and the inner healing, like, oh man, there's so much of a mothering God that speaks to some of our deepest wounds. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's something of a cliche of, of, saying like, Oh, your father wounds can be healed by knowing God as father. And, but it's, it's also true, like it's cliche for a reason, because it does something in the human psyche. And so I think, similarly, um, you know, mother wounds, people who have complicated relationships with their mothers for a variety of reasons. you know, being able to encounter a divine mother who is all loving and all compassionate and, and all accessible. I think those things really do heal something deep inside of us. Um, at the same time, I think men who are committed to to a life of justice and equality, I think um, making the space for their own encounter with the divine feminine is incredibly beneficial because it really does open up something different of understanding the female experience, understanding um, what it is to be margin, like gender marginalization in the church of not seeing, you know, that male Jesus body is, is represented everywhere in our church, right? The, the, um, language of father and he, like you said, is everywhere. And it's really easy to take it for granted because that's all we've ever known. But I think, um, once you start seeing it, you can't unsee it. And I think we really need men to see that, (laughs) you know? And so, um, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of internal work, um, that it can do for men. And there's also a lot of structural work that that needs to be done and men have to be able to see it in order for things to happen.
0: I totally um, agree with you. And I I think, um, something uh, really fascinating about this image, um, in relation to this is that it's not like, it sounds like something that's like new age, like hippie, yeah. something would, somebody would come up with, but actually this is an image that first originated with, um, uh, monk theologians in, uh, well, it really first originated in, in scriptural passages, but the folks who developed it into this full blown image where these monk theologians in, uh, the Middle Ages. And what's really funny about that is that a lot of them were really misogynist still. Um, they were not huge fans of women. Uh, a lot of celibate men in the Middle Ages blamed women for a lot of things, which sadly we uh, we still can see that today. Um, but, but they uh, used this image to Um, speak to how they wanted their authority to be among their fellow monks. So these abbots were writing um, like they wanted to be like Jesus as a mother. And so they were rejecting this like real patriarchal, like stern authority in favor of something really tender and compassionate. Mm -hmm. And I love that because that's an image grounded in this, funny historical background that speaks directly to what you were just saying about um how it can help you begin to transform s- structural problems even when you're still mired in it you know
1: so yes I yeah and I I love that you pointed that out because um it it is fun there is like this I, because there's a reemergence of, of interest in, in the feminine of God these days, I think there's also a lot of pushback and a lot of people being really scared of it. And, um, and, but but it is funny because you're like, well, we can actually see this for centuries. Um, it's just kind of in the last century, it's really gotten shoved under the rug almost, but even, you know. Architecture. I mean, baptismal fonts used to be like shaped like vaginas. Yes, you know? <laughs> and like the you know the the arches in cathedrals and things like that are very womb esque. And there's just so much of this maternal and birthing um imagery in the church as well as the language. And and yeah, I always point people back to Julian of Norwich because that's such an easy one. <laughs> you know, yes. I'm like, well, go read this. <laughs> yes,
0: yes, and. But, uh, and there's this, these awesome, um, and I used it in the art for for what I was um, posting about this talk with you on Instagram, but these awesome medieval manuscript images where they actually paint Jesus's side wound as, like, it, it literally looks like a vagina. I mean, yes. for real. And um, people are just so often shocked when they encounter that because... Um, They can't imagine that somebody in like the 13th, 14th century is like playing around with gender in this way. Right. They're like,
1: it's got to be doctored. (laughs) Yeah, that can't be real.
0: But it is. I mean, it just goes to show you that some of our most extreme discomfort um, with some of these uh, gender roles and thinking of of God differently in regards to feminine and masculine qualities, are actually really culturally contingent and in our culture and, and self-imposed and something that we can begin to break down and discard.
1: Yes. Yes. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And Liana Norwich talks about, um, she, I love that she like mixes up the gender, like, and that's such a beautiful like visual idea. I actually want to track down, um, a picture of that, of like the the vaginal looking side wounds. Oh, there are
0: so many. You just have to do a Google search, and you can find so many.
1: Don't worry. Some of them,
0: you're like, oh wow, okay, this is really intense.
1: This is how I'm going to spend my lunch break today. Search, um, but yeah, like you know, I love that she's she's really unapologetic and and not self conscious about mixing Mm -hmm. up those things of, of Jesus' mother, he, our mother, he birthed us, like, like all of this, it's, it's like convoluted, but like in the best way. Yes. (laughs) yes. It just turns everything on its head. And I, I, I feel excited about um, exploring that more in my own personal life. Um, And as a mom, like how I present God to my children, you know, I am um, we're doing these at home faith formation things um, right now because COVID like we're we're still somewhat limiting the activities that our kids go to that require them to be around groups and so we're doing it at home and um, we read something about you know God is father I think it was about the Trinity or something and and my seven-year-old was like but God is mother too and I like wanted to do a victory <laughs> dance around the room <laughs> You're like, yes. Yeah, absolutely. because it, was it, wasn't, it wasn't at the expense of God as father. You know, it was like yes. in his skin. And I was like, you get it. I love it so much. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing.
0: Um, okay, so this is related to um, what we were just talking about with uh, birth, particularly. But... Um, a question that I've been wrestling with, I'm still not fully sure how to how to approach it in my mind, um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts, is does envisioning Jesus as a mother change or um, help us to conceptualize or, uh, um, I don't know, but does it change how we understand or approach suffering?
1: Mm. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. You know, I, in my first book, I explore suffering a lot um, and embracing weakness because I was going through a really difficult time with my, my first child and Jesus's incarnation, crucifixion incarnation really carried me through that time and, um, and did a lot to teach me about about what it is to be human and, um, but to be honest, I have not, I have not drawn, uh, a correlation between that particular part of Jesus and then the idea of Jesus as mother. Um, but my gut (laughs) is that you're onto something really beautiful. And I would actually love for you to tell me more about what you're thinking about that.
0: Oh gosh. Okay. Well, let me, um, so, for one thing, I the way Julian uses it is very intimately connected with suffering, right? Um, and one of the most popular medieval ways of thinking of Jesus as a mother was thinking of the crucifixion and Jesus' death as a birth. Mm-hmm. And there are uh, medieval manuscripts out there. Um, I think I actually tried to post one, but it was really blurry, Um, but it is up um, for anybody who's interested. I have a post on Jesus' mother that is um, and an episode that was from last spring. So you can go back to that. But along with that, I have a post where I had posted several images. And there's this one image where Jesus is on the cross, and it's from a manuscript. And um, out of his side wound, there is uh, the church Emerging on the cross, um, and so it's this extremely literal uh, birthing crucifixion image of Jesus giving birth in his death and in his um, incarnational suffering, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I I feel like I barely have my like fingertips on this kind of bigger thing that is beyond my reach, but. Mm-hmm. Thinking about how um, in in so much of the church's history, we we have tended uh, both Protestants and Catholics to glorify suffering at times just because it's suffering. And we're taught that sometimes that suffering in itself is a good. And um, thinking of the crucifixion as a birth, as the suffering of birth, rather than pointless agony um rather than just suffering for suffering's sake I think is a really interesting instructive idea where um, if the crucifixion is uh is like a birth where you have I mean I don't know about um you Shannon but for me giving birth was the worst pain of my life for sure um I've been lucky I haven't had a severe illness or uh, anything like that but the pain was pretty severe, but it always had this constructive element of what was coming beyond it. Um, There was life in the suffering, even though I did not enjoy it at all. And I'm definitely not uh, a person, a woman who I've always admired these women, but I'm not one of them who is like a power woman when it comes to birth. Like, I just I'm not. Um, but <laughs>
1: like is anybody really I, I
0: don't know some people talk that way you know I just, I don't yeah, know yeah, but
1: there are
0: I feel like uh trying to wrap my head around suffering and rebirth and I I think at this point I'm just babbling but that this image has something to it and that's mm-hmm. what I'm trying to get to <laughs> Yeah
1: yes no definitely I think that's really true and I think it really touches on the theology of um you know, not to get, not to get too hairy here, but the theology of sin and like this, yes. like what the crucifixion was about, and yes. like what, that, what we believe about that. And so I, a few years ago, I was doing this Ignatian spiritual exercise where you kind of um, meditate and sort of use your imagination to explore what the scripture or the prayer is saying. And I, I remember reading something, there was a line that said something about praise, praise be the God who labors on my behalf. And I just realized how much had changed for me because for most, honestly, all of my life up to that point, I would have been picturing this father God who loves me very much, but like has to do this extra labor because I still have not gotten my act together and I'm still screwing up and like, you know, all of this. And, and it was out of love and out of compassion, but also the sense of like, it was because I was still sort of a failure because I was still not having, um, you know, not having victory over sin or just over my vices or whatever, you know? And, In that moment, I realized how much had changed because I had begun exploring this idea of a mothering God, and so this time, what I pictured was a woman, or you know, a woman as like the picture of God, like on her hands and knees in labor, like childbirth labor, and thinking um, the back to the verse, saying the God who labors on my behalf. And see how differently that felt to think. Oh, I am the infant being labored, being pushed out into the world. I have, I have not failed. I am doing exactly what infants do. Yes. <laughs> you know, I like, just I'm I'm I am just who I am and where I am, and it's all good and beautiful, and I am being taken care of. But it's not because I'm some massive failure, failure or disappointment, or like. Like God is just like ah, oh, this one she just can't get her act together. You know? It's, it's like, back to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like labor of of love and like exactly how um, things are meant to be between me and God. And it was just such a relief. I just felt so much visceral relief that like I'm not a burden. I'm not um, behind any kind of curve. I just I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be in this process of like infancy and being, and being labored for. And so I think in in a lot of ways that translates to that idea of the cross of like, do we see the cross as something that was, foisted upon Jesus because these people just can't get their act together and there's such, you know, such a burden. We got to do something about them and we love them, but you know, they're kind of a pain <laughs> or is it this mother birthing something more beautiful and more possible um, for, for the babies that she loves that are exactly where babies are going to be. And, and it's a natural um, and beautiful process. And I think that, is just such a more um inviting and honestly transformative way to see the cross yeah. that i think i think concentrating on an idea of sinfulness or of falling short really just kind of i i don't think it invites us to all that god has for us i think it's much more focusing on um what has been done and what the invitation is to um, to seeing ourselves with the kind of compassion that God sees us with and that a mother sees her child with um, and knowing they're just doing what children do. They're just doing what infants do and childbirth is what it is and it's worth it. Yeah, I think that that really has so much more capacity to um, propel us to be better and to be more whole and to be more, um, more of a force for good in the world Mm -hmm. and in ourselves.
0: Yeah. I I'm hearing so much of Julian's influence in what you're saying, um, because she's uh, she, she has this image of Jesus as a mother and us as his children. And it's, it's like fast forwarded a few years where we are old enough to move around and to walk and to talk. And in her envisioning, um, we fall down. The, The child falls down and, um, and as as many of us who have children know, uh, when your kids are young and they fall down, especially um, even when it's been they've been doing something stupid or it's their fault, they still look for you. They still, yeah. if they can, they run to you. If they are incapacitated, they scream for you to come. Yeah. Right? And Julian um, tells her reader, God wants us to use the condition of a child. That's her phrase, use the condition of a child, um, which means when we sin, when we fall down to not um, flee and hide or justify it or um, try to build our actions up into like, well, I did this because of this or whatever. In, in effect, um, in, the, in the children metaphor, like sort of distancing ourselves like, oh, I don't need you. Um, I can handle it. I'm fine. While inside we are suffering deeply but to use the condition of a little kid who falls and screams for their mother and then their mother can come and um comfort them and and be closer than um than they thought that they even needed and i i found that image to be so reflective of um, of how most of us act when we talk about sin and what we can see in the institutional church all the time rather than acknowledging sin, embracing, oh, Jesus, Mother, we need you. We need you so badly. We say, oh, no, I can handle this or I'm going to hide it or I'm going to run away from it. Um, and it becomes this even more destructive mechanism than, it ev- than ever the original fall was. Uh, um, yeah. And yeah, so, so I, I hear that in a lot of your exploration of that idea.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like what you said about, um, like, even if the child falls because they've been doing something that they shouldn't have been doing, <laughs> you know, um, that they're still looking for, you know, it's still the 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 instinct is still to call out for mama, but, and to know, I mean, in a, in a healthy, imperfect, but healthy mother-child relationship to know that, the mother will come and yes. be compassionate, even though you were doing something wrong. Yes. Um, when you said that, I I just clearly pictured my own son, who was like just a three year old toddler boy right now, who was he was a little squirrely mess, and and just how true that is of him, and and this really beautiful pull to to recognize that invitation is true of me as well. You know. Yes. So I'm going to be thinking about that a lot in my relationship with that particular child
0: no i i do too actually just last night um my son uh who is four he uh snuck a a candy bar into his bed and Mm. he knew he wasn't supposed to he had already had like a giant full-size snickers earlier that day like the treasure yeah Yeah. (laughs) and um and he Knew he wasn't supposed to have any more, but last night they read in their bed before bedtime, kind of wind down. And he, I walked in and he had his candy bar in his hand and was eating it. Like caught red-handed, and I took it away from him and threw it away and was like, you know, we can't do this. And and he was so mad at me. He was screaming and just so mad and embarrassed, like really embarrassed. Right. And um, and then, but he has so much. I mean, this is where I think children have so much to teach us too, because he, I came to him in his bed and like snuggled him and then he wouldn't let go of me, even though he was so mad at me, you know? And I think what a picture of what, um, I mean, a picture that Julian has helped me to, to try to embrace more of how I need to, um, I need to imitate my kids when, when I'm just ticked or embarrassed, or humiliated, or angry, or sad, um, in that not just sort of retreating into myself, and so anyways. Mm.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, I think we are coming up on our time's limit, but I did, um, want to ask you, one, if you had any sort of parting thoughts that you would like to share, uh, about this image that we haven't covered. And two, if you have any resources for folks if they're interested in finding out more other than your excellent book, um, where they could look and other than Julian, which we obviously have obsessively talked about. Um, okay. And then lastly, where they can find you on social media, all that jazz, um, what the best place is if they want to find out more about what you're up to.
1: Yeah. Oh gosh, let's see. There's so many good books out there that I would like push on anyone who asks me for recommendations that I let's see. Um Mirabai Star is is a author that I really appreciate. And she has a book called Wild Mercy. Um, and the subtitle is Wisdom from the Female Mystics, I believe. And I so she she writes a lot about just the um Women from a lot of different religious traditions, um, including a lot of Christian saints, but also others as well. And she does a really nice job of, of kind of um, weaving in this idea of a mothering God um, or a feminine God with just like the wisdom and theology of, of these saints. So that's a really good one. Also, um, Joyce Rupp. Have you ever read any Joyce Rupp? I have not. Who who really? is that? I, Tell me more. <laughs> she is a Catholic nun in, I think she's in Des Moines, which is only like 45 minutes from me. Um, but she's a prolific writer. She's got a lot of a lot of books out there. Um, and but the one for this purpose is is called The Star in My Heart, and it's mm-hmm. about Sophia. So the the in the wisdom books of the Bible, in the Old Testament, Sophia is kind of the personification of wisdom. And so it she does a lot of really interesting work around, um, you know, this idea of like this femininity in the divine and what it what it does in us, um, and the way that it can kind of serve to be, part of our conscience, um, part of our intuition and, um, part of our consciousness. And mm-hmm. so I think that's a that's a really accessible one as well. Um, yeah. So those are some, some good starting Great. points. awesome. Um, yeah, but I don't, I don't have any amazing closing words other than I think what I always, um, what I always want to tell people about this topic is just take a little step forwards and because it can be if it feels new or, or um you know I mean threatening is a strong word, but if it feels uncomfortable, um yeah, just just take a little like dip a toe in the water, see how it feels, check your spirit, you know, and like just take one more step. And um I think that really good fruit is born from this idea and from seeing God in a new way I think um every metaphor for God is not for every person but I think we are served well when we um explore them as many as possible and see what does resonate and what does begin to heal something inside of us and um what does speak to us maybe right now will be different than what speaks to us in 10 years and so to kind of keep our spiritual life fresh by, by being willing to explore those things. Mm, yes. And
0: this sound, this might sound really dumb, but just um, to, to, to tag onto what you're saying uh, it's okay to be uncomfortable and, um, and not blame yourself for that either. I think often we can be like, why, why doesn't this work for me? If it doesn't, that's okay. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and also this, image has such a long and rich history. It's not new. It's not heretical. I kind of don't really enjoy using that word, but it's, it's actually not. Um, and so just, if you're hearing this for the first time, you're going, I've never heard of this. Don't worry. It's out there. Just start digging. Yeah. Um, and then social media.
1: Oh yes. Um, so I'm most active on Instagram which Shannon K the letter K Evans. And then I, you can also find me on that way on Facebook and then Twitter. It's a little difference. It's Shannon K A Y Evans. Great. But, yep.
0: Awesome. Well, Shannon, for, sorry, what was that?
1: I said, thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> oh, thank you so fun. much for coming on. And um, I really appreciate all the wisdom you've had to offer in your book. And Thank you so much for um, putting it out there in the world and writing something about motherhood that doesn't feel um, uh, overtly sentimental or suffocating in its expectations. Um, I feel like uh, so much stuff out there is hard to read as a mom. And so I really appreciate what you've done. Thank you for that.
1: Thanks so much, Grace.
0: And thank you to all who are listening and joined in. And if you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would give a review or um, stars on iTunes or if you would subscribe. Uh, It helps others to find the podcast if they're searching for it. And I'd love for more people to know about this beautiful image of Jesus as our mother and um, think through that. Uh, Coming up next week is another really interesting literary conversation with Victoria Emily Jones of Art and Theology. And we'll be talking about art and the Annunciation. And I think it's going to be really fun. So join in. Uh, I appreciate you listening. And um, you can follow me on Instagram at Old Books with Grace or on Twitter at Grace Hammond, PhD. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the episode. Thanks for listening.